0: to be with you again. Uh, as Liz was saying, it is the first Sunday of the church year. It is the season of Advent. And Pastor Bert and I, when we discussed uh, you know, what themes we would explore, decided that for Advent we would look at Matthew chapter one. Because Matthew chapter one is one of those chapters that we tend to skip, uh, just a whole long list of names. And in that list of names, there are four women who are mentioned, uh, who are mothers of Jesus. They stand in the genealogical line. And for women to be added to a genealogical line in what is essentially a Jewish document was an amazing reality. And you begin to ask, why? But it's also the season of Advent, and you begin to ask, as Liz said to the kids, what do we do to prepare to celebrate the first coming of Jesus? And what do we do to prepare to celebrate the anticipated, hopeful coming of Jesus in the future, when as Liz said, he will come to make all things new? And so we live in hope. But we do not live to spin our wheels, we live to do things constructively and to move forward. We are called not only to be disciples of Jesus, but we are called to be growing disciples of Jesus. So I would like to say something outrageous to you this morning that's probably not very commonly heard in the church, and that is, I'm going to ask you to quit reading your Bibles. Lest you think I misspoke, I will say it again. I am going to ask you to quit reading your Bibles. Now, that goes contrary to the song we learned in Sunday school, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I am going to ask you instead to start studying your Bibles. There's a difference between reading and studying. To read, you can just simply read through, close the book and not think about it anymore. The study means that you have to ask, so what? What difference does this make to me? How is this going to change my life? How did it change the life of the person I'm reading about or the persons I'm reading about or the events that I'm reading about? How does this contribute to the coming of the kingdom of Jesus? To study the word is to invite God in to help you grow, to change, to mature, to become more like Jesus. So we study. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. I don't believe it's on the screen uh, this morning. But in Matthew chapter 1, you'll find that in your pew Bibles on page 965, you'll find one of those passages of scripture, which like so many things, like in the book of Chronicles, for example, have long lists of names that we skipped over. My father read the scriptures religiously at our family meals, but when he got to the book of Chronicles, he would skip great pieces of it. Because just lists of names. Well, Matthew 1 is a list of names. We skip it to our peril. Let me read with you. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, or Tamar, depending on how you want to read that. We're going to stop there, because we're going to focus on the passage of Scripture that deals with Tamar. Now, there are two Tamars in the Scriptures. One is the daughter of King David, who gets raped by her brother Amnon. But there is this other Tamar, who we read about in Genesis chapter 38, And that is found on page 40 in your pew Bibles, and I invite you to go there next. Now, Genesis chapter 38 is a chapter that stands in context. In chapter 37, the opening words are, this is the account of Jacob. Okay, this is verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Now, if you're a good student of the book of Genesis, there are 10 accounts, or the Hebrews would say 10 Toledotes. It's a nice name, isn't it? 10 Toledotes, 10 accounts. So the account of Adam and Seth and Abraham. We get now to the account of Jacob's family, but the focus in chapters 37 to chapter 50 of Genesis is primarily on Jacob's son by Rachel, Joseph, who becomes the essential savior of the then-known world by his food collection and food distribution program. Genesis 37 invites you into the story of Joseph, who is hated by his brothers. Because Joseph has a rather high view of himself. He's 17 years old. He has dreams, and the dreams involve the reality of his brothers and even his father bowing down to him. His father has favored him, gives him a coat of many colors or a coat of long sleeves. It sort of allows him to, you know, feel, I'm somebody. He might not have been the most discerning person to begin to brag about what he was uh, going to say to his brothers, but he says, you know, I saw the stars and the sheaves bow down to me. And his brother says, who do you think you are? One day they're out working, taking care of sheep. Joseph doesn't have to do that. But dad sends Joseph to take a look at what's going on. His brothers see him coming and say, We'll get rid of him. And they hatch a plot to murder him. And they put him in a pit, and they're going to probably abandon him there. But then Judah, an older brother, intervenes. So if you've if you got your Bibles open at chapter 38, if you go to chapter 37 at verse 26, Judah said to his brother, What will we gain and that's an important phrase here. What will we gain? How will it profit us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So Joseph gets sold. That's chapter 37. You could skip chapter 38 and not miss a beat in the story of Genesis. Chapter 39 says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the garden, and he purchases Joseph to be a household slave. You could skip 38 altogether. Would not be surprised to see that happen. I checked all the children's Bibles that I own. Chapter 38 is not referenced in any one of the children's Bibles. I looked at some old Sunday school material. The story of Tamar is not recorded in Sunday school material. I doubt we'd ever tell it at a vacation Bible school. Why? Because it deals with a mess of a family. It deals with birth control and sexuality, and prostitution. It deals with the threat of capital punishment. It deals with arrogance and pride and double standards. It deals with painful subjects. It deals with the mess of human life. And Tamar is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So let me read. At that time, that associates it with the sale of Joseph and his father, who, Jacob, who refuses to be comforted. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of a named Hirah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur, She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Ona knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also." Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, "Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers." So Tamar went to live with her father's household. In her father's household, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah. To the men who were shearing his sheep and his friend Hira the Abdullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had been grown up, she had not been given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, "'Come now, let me sleep with you.' "'What will you give me to sleep with me?' she asked. "'I'll send you a young goat from my flock,' he said. "'Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it?' she asked. He said, "'What pledge should I give you?' "'Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand,' she answered." So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Abdullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim?" There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. And Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shela," And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. When his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out, he was given the name Perez. Zerah, this is the word of the Lord. You understand why most people would skip this chapter. It's a bit sordid. It's a bit messy. It's a bit raw. When, uh, when Philip, the uh, disciple of Jesus, one of the deacons, came up to the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from the prophecy of Isaiah, Philip asks him this really important question. Do you understand what you are reading? Or perhaps, do you understand what you are studying? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? How can I grow unless I think about this and understand it and grapple with the issues? And so I think it's an important aspect of this particular story as well, the story of Tamar. How can we deal with this person who who plays the role of a harlot, who plays the role of a prostitute, who who makes her subject to almost immediate judgment and wrath? Well, the broader context that I think is really important We've mentioned a little bit already about the family dynamics. This is the account of Jacob. And Joseph, his oldest son by Rachel, his favored wife, is hated by his brothers. He is going to be put to death until Judah, who is the fourth son of Jacob's not favored wife named Leah, and is going to emerge as a leader. Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, has disqualified himself because he has slept with his father's concubine. And his next brothers, Simeon and Levi, have disqualified themselves because while well, when their sister Dinah was violated by the Shechemites, they arranged for all the Shechemite men to be circumcised. And in their pain, they then destroyed all the Shechemites men And Jacob says, you have made me odious amongst these people. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi all seem to be disqualified as the oldest son. And Judah takes a role. He says, well, what will we gain if we kill our brother? Let's just sell him. And so they did. And then they go home and they have this concocted story to Father Jacob about how Joseph apparently fell prey to a wild animal. And they have his coat of many colors there with them. And Jacob refuses to be comforted. And Judah leaves. We're not told why. We're left to surmise why. We're left to ponder why. But it's not hard to imagine that he is riven with guilt and shame. He sees his father broken and discouraged without hope. His father is destroyed. He refuses to be comforted. And for a long time, 20 plus years or so, Judah remains away from his family situation and home. And he lives with the Canaanites and he marries a Canaanite woman, something that father, grandfather Abraham did not want to have happen to Isaac and that grandfather or great-grandfather Abraham, grandfather Isaac did not want to have happen to Jacob who he sends back to Laban to get a, a wife from amongst their own community because he knows you can become prey to the pagan cultures of the day. And Judah marries a Canaanite woman, has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. He gets a wife for Er. Her name is Tamar, which means date palm. The reasons we are only told that Er was not a nice guy, and the Lord intervenes, puts him to death. Now something kicks in that Moses later with the law would would, uh, articulate called the Leverite marriage, and you will find that also in the story of Ruth and Boaz. But the idea was that if your brother died without any children, that the next in line, Onan in this case, would take on Tamar as wife and raise up children on behalf of his brother Ur so that his brother Ur's property would stay in Ur's family. But Onan decides, no sense spreading the wealth. If Ur er does not have any children, it's all mine. And he practices what we now today call Cotus interruptus. He spills his semen on the ground. And various churches have used this as an articulation against birth control. That's nonsense. There's nothing wrong with practicing good birth control. What Onan refused to do was to honor God's calling and to be obedient. So the reality was that Onan's life was also taken. And now Judah gets concerned. He has lost Two sons, he has one left, apparently quite a bit younger. So he exercises his authority. And he says to Tamar, go back to dad. Go live in your father's house. And when my son is old enough, I'll call you and then you can become his wife. With no intention at all to keep that promise. No intention at all. And so the reality was that uh, there's pain in the life of Judah as there's pain in the life of Jacob. And so you think for now a moment, what is going to happen? Well, time passes. After a long time, the reality of... um, The account of Jacob's life and family unfolds. Jacob, who refuses to be comforted because of the pain, after a long time, Judah's wife dies. And that seems now for him to be the opportunity to party. It's sheep shearing time. This is when the wool gets sold. When the task has been accomplished. The money flows. The beer flows. And there is this whole idea that, well, one can consort as well. Judah has been without a wife. No doubt his needs have risen to the surface. And he decides that he is going to consort. And he meets Tamar. Now Tamar has heard that father Judah, father-in-law Judah, is off to party. And so she changes out of her widow's clothes and puts on the clothes of a prostitute, covering her face. Now, you need to understand the culture of the day. When the, the, the pledge of, the, of Judah is brought by the Adulamite, his friend Hirah. He looks for a shrine prostitute in the pagan culture of the day. It was legitimate to meet with prostitutes within the shrines because as you met with a prostitute and spilled your seed, that would also then encourage the production of your seed in the land and that the wheat would grow and that there would be profit. So there was this nice just bringing together of these two ideas. If you ever want to read an interesting background to this, read James Michener's book, The Source, because it provides a lot of insight into the culture of the day. It is a powerful and wonderful uh, reading uh, of that ancient history, which is pretty accurate, really, until you can be, again, informed. And so... He sees the shrine prostitute. He thinks nothing of her. Uh, what do I need to pay you? Well, well, I'll give you a goat, she, he says to her. Uh, she wasn't born yesterday. She's pretty bright. And so she says, well, I need surety. I need a deposit. I need a guarantee that you will actually send me what you promised. Well, what shall I give you? Well, your cord, your signet, and your staff. If you look at the pictures on the screen, those are uh, modern-day signet ring. You could stick it into to wax or into clay. The one at the, at the bottom on the right is actually a picture of the signet ring of King Hezekiah of Israel. They were used to seal documents. They were used to sign checks to say that you would be good for whatever promise that you had made. And so Judah agrees. The rough equivalent today would be that if somebody would say, well, you give me your driver's license until you pay me what you owe. Would you surrender your driver's license? Would you give the password to your bank account? Probably not. Judah does it. Judah does it, and the result is that Tamar gets pregnant Years later, the prophet Hosea would write these words. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. Now notice the line. The people without understanding will come to ruin." Think about that in terms of Judah's situation. He doesn't quite understand everything that's going on. And ruin is about to come upon his life. It has already come on his life because he has seen the pain and the sorrow of his father Jacob. He has lost his son's Ur and Onan. He is desperately fearful of losing his son Sheila if she would go, if he would go and become the husband to Tamar, because Tamar probably has something evil about her. Perhaps she's even a witch. And so the reality is, is that Judah is in a bit of a panic. And the result is that he is stuck. On the horns of a dilemma now he doesn't know that yet he's not aware until three months later three months later there's evidence of a baby bump and the gossip mill runs rampant they ever run rampant in your community in your church We commend and we condemn adultery. We don't condemn gossip so much. Judah is told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has acted the role of a prostitute and she is pregnant. And he exercises authority. He says, bring her out and burn her. And so they bring her out they're ready to parade her to the stake but she's not stupid she's got her resources and she holds them up for all to see the man to whom these belong is the father of my child oh and then this great reversal she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And then this little phrase that we just sort of maybe skip over, and he never slept with her again. He refrained from now engaging in what he had so readily engaged in. Something's happening in Judah. She is more righteous than I. What's happening? Well, the Bible talks about the reality of repentance. The Bible talks about the reality of a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. The Bible talks, or the Catechism talks about repentance being a dying away of the old self and a coming to life of the new self. And that process is beginning to unfold in the life of Judah. She is more righteous than I. And that's where the story seems to stop. Except for this consequence. The consequence of impregnant, or being pregnant and And now history seems to repeat itself. Jacob is one of a twin. So Judah's father is one of a twin. And there has been this this entanglement between Esau, the oldest, and Judah, the youngest, and Jacob, the youngest. And Esau sort of gets pushed aside, sometimes by his own decisions and actions, And Jacob rises to the foreground. And now again, we see this reality of twins. And there's this interesting little event that takes place. Tamar is pregnant with twins. The arm of one emerges from the vaginal opening and the midwife puts a scarlet ring around the arm and says, well, this one's evident first. And then he pulls back. Don't ask me about all the obstetrical issues here. Uh, he pulls back. And his brother, who's to be named Perez, comes out first. And then these interesting things. The midwife says, so see how this has broken, uh, you have broken out. And he is named Perez, which means breaking out. And his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was given the name Zerah, which means scarlet or brightness. What are we to make of it? Well, life unfolds. At some point, apparently, Judah goes back to live with Father Jacob and the extended family, because when hunger comes and they have to travel to Egypt, Judah is part of the traveling group of brothers. He's back. If you know the story, you know that Joseph, who is the Well, or or the well developed character son of Jacob, you know, who has kept his integrity and kept his word and now is functioning as the second most powerful person in the then known world. You know, Joseph has been the bright and shining one, he has been the one to whom. We would all look. If you would look at Scripture and how you read Scripture, and if you need moral examples of how you would like a son to behave, you'd probably pick Joseph or Daniel or one of those types of people. And if you would want a, a picture of how you would have a daughter behave, well, you'd probably pick Ruth or Mary or one of those equivalent people. Probably wouldn't commit pick Tamar or Judah but God does, and you have to ask, why? Well, Judah has learned a lesson. Tamara or, or Tamar, is more righteous than I. And now he's reflecting. He's thinking, and he gets lots of opportunity to think and to ponder. And the day comes when he ends up in Egypt and what does he do? He bows before this person who he doesn't recognize. But who is brother Joseph? The dream of years before has come true. He bows before brother Joseph and brother Joseph is testing his brothers and he sends them back and he says, don't come back without brother Benjamin, who is Joseph's actual you know, full brother of mother Rachel and father Jacob. And so they go back to Jacob and Jacob says, there's no way. You're, I'm not letting my Benjamin go with you. Forget it. But Judah intervenes and he says, you know, if, if we don't go back and get more food, we'll all die. You know, the, the Ukrainians today are, are celebrating Holodomor. Back in the mid-30s, Joseph Stalin starved four million Ukrainians to death. You know, we, we have world hunger issues. We had them then, we have them now. We need to be concerned about that. But they say to Father Jacob, we'll starve to death. We need to go. Finally, Jacob agrees. And so they take Benjamin. And Joseph sees Benjamin. And then he says, you know what? I am going to keep Benjamin here. And Judah says, no. Can't do that. And Judah offers himself in place. He says, and you see the words here, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. It's interesting, eh? Because Benjamin by this time must be a full-grown man and have children of his own, but he's still the boy. He's the youngest, obviously. you know. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Let's not repeat history. I'll take his place. Now what happens? Well, if you know the story, Joseph sends the Egyptian servants out and he cascades in tears and he reveals himself to his brothers because his brothers have now shown that they have a growing integrity Now, what has happened? Well, the Lord, our God, looks at the life of Judah and he sees the quality of repentance. I think the scarlet cord on Zerah represents Joseph. He's the scarlet, bright, and shining one. He is the one that you would all want to have your children look like and behave like and be like. And Perez represents Judah. He is the betrayer. He is the salesman. He is the one who says, what gain is there in this for us? He is the one who can't cope with his father's grief and shame. He can't tell the truth. But he repents. She is more righteous than I. In the full-blown reality of repentance it gets shown up here. I can't let this misery come on my father. And when you read the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, you read not about Joseph. You read about Judah and Tamar and Perez from whom Jesus is born. And what's the lesson for us? Well, Martin Luther, in, um, on October the 31st of 1517, nailed 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg. I want to ask a question. How many of you have ever read the 95 theses? One, two, three, four, five. Indulge yourself sometime. Just Google it. It's easy. It's easy. You can even ask uh, Siri to bring it up for you, right? She'll do it. And this is what you will read first. When our Lord and Master said, repent, what he intended was that all of us should live a life of repentance. That's number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, what he intended was that all of us should live a life of repentance. All of us should live a life of self-examination. When Tamar holds up the cord, the signet ring, the staff, what she reveals is the reality of a double standard a law for men, and a law for women. And what Joseph comes to realize is that is not fair. We need to recognize that all of us need to live a repentant life before God. And so it's Advent. And I want to ask you to think about what you are going to do in this season when we anticipate the celebration of his first coming. You'll focus on presents, you'll focus on trees and decorations, and you'll focus on meals and special family gatherings and things at school and things with Sunday school. All of this is wonderful. Don't forget to look at your heart and ask if you are repentant I need to ask myself that. We all need to ask ourselves that. Because when we are repentant, Jesus, who will come again, but as a thief in the night, will be looking at our hearts to see whether or not we recognize that we are righteous because of him who came through the womb of tomorrow. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Help us to study it. Help us to recognize the truth of it. And help us to be repentant before you, bowing our knee, recognizing that it's so easy for us to feel self-righteous. Help us to recognize, Lord God, that in the face of Jesus, we see true righteousness, and that when we bow the knee before him, we receive his righteousness. And so we pray that you would use us, inform us, and shape us. Help us to break out of our old patterns, and help us to shine like stars in the kingdom of our God and Savior.